I think the triumphal entry, uh, as it's, it's traditionally called, um, a lot of times is underestimated in, uh, in the, as far as significance goes in the, in the life of Christ. I really do. Uh, I mean, if you stand back and look at the Gospels, it's like what we're trying to, what we've been trying to do in, in the book of Genesis, kind of stand back and look at these, these mountain peak uh, narratives to, to see how it all fits together. I think if you do that with the Gospels, you, you can see some very significant things. Jesus had an uh, earthly life of 30-plus years, his ministry about three years, and, and you... You probably would, would start with Bethlehem. That's a pretty significant thing. Here is the, the announcement of the, of the Messiah. You'd probably include the virgin birth prior to the, the announcement. Um, you could probably look at the life of Jesus and, and see some turning points where he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom and people are kind of going along and then, and then about halfway through opposition comes. And now everything is against him. All the religious leaders are, are against him. You, you may include the transfiguration. It was pretty significant, wasn't it? You, you get a picture in, in the different uh, writers, specifically Luke talks about this, of Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem. That he's moving inch by inch, moment by moment, to, to, the, to this 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 passage we're going to look at today, and the triumphal entry really is the is the trigger point. It's the it's the moment that launches the the week, and it's it's significant because of that. It's also significant though because there are there are probably as many prophecies fulfilled in the triumphal entry as in just about any other place in the Passion Week. I mean, you have the king of the Jews presenting himself as the king. You have fulfillment of prophecy from Daniel, from Isaiah, from Zechariah, just to name, just to name a few. You have Psalm 24 that, that we, we, we heard from this morning. Uh, Psalm 118. Just have a number of things happening in this, in this passage. We're gonna, we're gonna walk through it. We're going to see some significant parts, but all of that is going to be an introduction and to set us up for, for the way I hope to, uh, hope to end this morning. This week for us is, is where we intentionally focus on the final days of the Lord as He moves toward the, toward the, toward the cross. Um, at this point in the Gospels, Jesus' ministry has been going on for three years, and Things are just going to pick up speed. I mean, this is the point of no return, if you, if you will. Jesus does some things in the triumphal entry that he never does anywhere else in the Gospels. He, he organizes, he orchestrates, he prompts the crowd to recognize him as the king. As to where you find him in the Gospels before, a lot of times when he heals people, he says, you know, go fulfill the commands to the law uh, that Moses wrote about, and don't tell anybody that I did this. And, and in this event, he's, he's going to even declare to the Pharisees when they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples for what they're saying. I mean, they know exactly what, what, the, what the people are, are saying about Jesus. Jesus says, 
No, I'm not going to, to silence them because if, at this moment, if they would be quiet, even the inanimate objects, creation itself would crowd and declare exactly who, who I am. As I mentioned during the time of prayer, this is, Jesus could have avoided his death. In, but the death is why, he, is why he came. He didn't die as a revolutionary. He died as a, as a substitute to make atonement. And instead of avoiding conflict, as I said, Jesus, Jesus allows this very public scene, which is going to bring about a, a week of confrontation with religious leaders in, in Israel. The religious leaders, those who are supposed to be representing God, those who, who have control over the temple, the control over the sacrifices, the place where God is supposed to meet people, in the holy place, they're going to find themselves face to face with the Lord of the temple and God Himself. And Jesus is going to confront them, begin that confrontation today. And He's going to let them know, even as, as Clay read to us this morning, He's not pleased with, with them or, the, or the, the system. I think it's also interesting that the week begins and ends at the same place. We start the week, this is Sunday, Sunday in the life of Christ, which is the first day of their week. Sabbath would have been on Saturday. They, he starts the triumphal entry, he starts the week on the Mount of Olives, passes through the Garden of Gethsemane, and he ends the week on the Mount of Olives at the Garden of Gethsemane where they, they lead him Away. All four Gospels record the, the triumphal entry. But I want to go to the Gospel of Mark. So open your Bibles to Mark 11. Mark is known as the, the, the speedy apostle. He, he writes immediately and immediately and, and he just moves right along. Mark would have clearly been diagnosed as ADD or given Ritalin or something if, if that was happening back in his day. He's quick. But I really think Mark catches the, the, um, the sense that we should have when we walk away from the, from the triumphal entry. Because the triumphal entry is, is, is victorious. At least it should be. But it ends in... in Deflation. I mean, here is the king, the promised one. Here is the seed that goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Here is the greater Isaac. Here is the promised one. Here is the one who was to be an everlasting king, setting upon a throne of his father David that had no end. Here he is. All of the Old Testament fulfilled. He's been doing nothing for three years but declaring that I'm exactly who I'm declaring myself to be through the miracles and the signs. He's doing exactly what the Old Testament said. He's healing the blind. He's, he's causing the lame to walk. He's raising the dead, all confirming Jesus is the Christ. And now, this amazing moment... Well, just as Ezekiel foretells, he's on the Mount of Olives, 
He's looking at the Temple Mount where God meets with His people in the holy city Jerusalem. The Temple is there. And He enters. Mark starts us with the the presentation of the of the king. I think Mark actually records one of the saddest verses in the Bible. I love this 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 passage when when we go to Israel because it's just so plain, so clear when you stand there, you can see the temple. Mark begins in in the first verse of the 11th chapter, that Jesus is just outside of the city. It says, As He approached the city at Bethpage in Bethany near the Mount of Olives, He sends two disciples and said, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately, there's Mark's favorite word, as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one ever sat. Bring it here. Jesus directly commands the disciples to do this. Now, Bethany and Bethpage is on the back side of the Mount of Olives. Pretend that the platform here is the Mount of Olives. You are the temple mount. So, Bethany and Bethpage is on the back side of the Mount of Olives. And before Jesus ever tops the Mount of Olives, which would be looking down upon the Kidron Valley and up the other side you'd be looking at the Temple Mount if you were standing in, in my place and I was on the, on the Mount of Olives. Jesus commands His disciples to go get this colt. You don't see the colt. You can't see the colt. He, he just knows it's there and He tells them specifically what to do. That's evidence that Jesus wasn't just walking into the city and all of a sudden a crowd gets whipped up and says, you know, hey, here's the guy, let's throw palm branches down on the road. I mean, Jesus is in complete control of what's happening here. He's the one that initiates the command to the disciples to go get the colt according to Zechariah 9.9. Bethany and Bethpage is the home of Mary and Martha and, and a guy named Lazarus. And Jesus has just come up from Jericho. And he meets Zacchaeus in Jericho. He comes to the Lord, and upon leaving Zacchaeus' house, he travels towards Jerusalem, and he arrives here at, at Bethany. It's reasonable to think that Jesus would have arrived there before, before sunset, which would have been on the Sabbath, on the Saturday. And he has a meal in Simon the leper's house with his friends. And, and I mean, people are really jazzed up right now for a couple of reasons. One, it's the Passover. So, thousands upon thousands of people are traveling from all over Israel and they're coming to one place. They're coming to, to Jerusalem. Now, Israel today is about the size of New Jersey. It wasn't much bigger then. But from, from Dan to Beersheba, from the top of, of, of Israel, think of the Sea of Galilee, down to where Jerusalem is, everybody is converging on, on the temple. 
for the Passover. They're all coming to the same place. And, and they're all traveling the same roads. And they're traveling together in groups. And they're not getting there in, in the same day. It's, it's a long journey. And, and they're walking or they're riding some, some animal if they, if they had one. And Jesus is in the midst of the crowds, on the roads, coming up from, from Jericho, which the road would have come down from the, from the Sea of Galilee, down to Jericho, which is close to the top of the Dead Sea, and then they would have went up to Jerusalem. You can still see the old Jericho Road if you, if you go there, the road that the Lord would have traveled on. And he doesn't make it all the way to the city. He makes it to Bethany and, and Bethpage. People are excited because it's, a, it's an event. Uh, Rome is on high alert because of all of these Jews that are gathering in the same place and they're concerned about, about a rebellion. I mean, if you're going to have a riot, what better time to have a riot when everybody is all in the same place? When, when you're gathering there because of your God and, and you're, you're resisting the Romans because they are ruling over you and you know God's promised you the land and, and all those other things. They're also excited because of the events that have been happening. People have been hearing about Jesus. And people have just heard about something that has been miraculous, something that's extremely significant, which was the late the raising of Lazarus from the dead. I mean, people don't normally come back to life, right? And they definitely don't come back to life after four days when, when three days have passed and the, the putrefaction has set in. From Jericho, I mean, you can really follow the story. He builds this kingly narrative. Zacchaeus shows the submission to the king. Lazarus shows the sovereign power of the king. As he's, as he's on the way, he gives sight to blind Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, and that sets us up for this scene where Jesus heals a physical blind man who recognizes he's the son of David and all of Israel is spiritually blind and misses the son of David whenever he comes. The focus this week is going to shift now to the authority of the king. He doesn't cleanse the temple today. He, cleanse the te- he cleanses the temple on Monday. And Mark shows us this. Jesus just simply comes in and presents himself as the, as the king. And he does it in a very precise way. Way. Look at Mark 11, verse 3. It says, If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were there saying, What are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave him permission. I mean, this whole narrative is set up to show us who Jesus is. And, and you have this presentation of the king, and, and you've got his omniscience displayed and the command to go get the colt in verse 2. I mean, Jesus is in a different place. He doesn't see the colt. His omniscience is put on display there. His divine authority is shown in, in what they were to say. It says, if somebody asks you, what are you doing? 
Say, the Lord has need of it. And they'll say, okay. Um, Luke's account in verse 33 of Luke 19, the, the, the word that the owner used, it's the owner of the colt. Luke says, when its Lord, when the colt's Lord, when the owner of the donkey said to them, why are you untying the colt? They answered, because the Lord has need of it. Jesus' power is shown by, by riding a colt that is, that's unbroken. Look at verse 7. They brought the colt to Jesus and they put their coats on it and He sat on it. This is a colt that no one has ever sat on and was unbroken and unused. It, they placed their cloaks on it and then Jesus gets up on top of it. Now, if you've ever dealt with animals, you understand that this is supernatural. Jesus is not the donkey whisperer. Jesus is God. And whenever He gets on top of this colt, a little donkey that's never been ridden, it does nothing. It allows him to sit there. Showing his power even over dumb, dumb animals. Never even flinches. And all of that was necessary to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies of how the king would come. His kingly position is revealed in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You've got, you've got his omniscience, supernatural power, you get his kingly position here. Matthew in his account says that all these things took place so that what was spoken might be fulfilled. He's referencing Zechariah 9, 9. Verse 7 says, They brought the colt to Jesus, put their coats on it, and He sat on it. And many spread their coats on the road. Zechariah 9.9 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of the donkey. Matthew specifically says, pay attention, Jesus is doing this intentionally to fulfill exactly what Zechariah declared. I think it's significant. Not only does the cult, uh, there's the fact that when Jesus gets on the cult, it doesn't do anything, but that the cult is, is, is separated. It's, it's one that no one has ever ridden on. It, supernatural power showed in the separated nature of the cult and it's unused. It's set apart specifically for the Lord's use, like you find certain instruments in the temple. His divine nature is affirmed in the crowd's declaration. Look at verse 9. Those who went in front and those who followed. So you got people in front of Jesus, people following Jesus, Jesus on the colt in the middle, starting down the hill. Matthew tells us that they poured out of the temple. So you've got people coming behind Him on the Mount of Olives, this large crowds, Jesus in the middle, the disciples around Him. He's riding on this colt. You've got people in front of Him. You've got people inside the temple that can see what's happening on the Mount of Olives. And they start pouring out of the, the eastern side of the temple and they're 
They're all saying, Hosanna. Quoting Scripture, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the, of the Lord. As he begins his descent towards the, the eastern side of the temple, the, I mean, the crowd just turns into fever pitch and the disciples and everyone is, is overcome with excitement. Anticipation. They're probably thinking about all of the miracles, the blind seeing, the lepers cleansed, Lazarus raised, and they break into praise to God. In essence, they're saying, make way for the king. The king is coming. When you put all the gospels together, you get a you get this unbelievable picture. Hosanna means save now. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming one. The kingdom of our father David is here. Hosanna in the highest. Peace in heaven. Glory in the highest. Even the king of Israel. That's what people were crying. So it's a recitation of Psalm 118, which is the Hallel, sung during the Passover. This is no quiet gathering. I mean, at any moment, Jesus could have said, Guys, you know, keep it down. I don't want anybody to know who I am. I'm a... I'm a religious zealot here to infiltrate like the CIA to overthrow Rome. That's, that's not what he does. He, he orchestrates this. You can see the ridge of olive trees and the road that comes down into the Temple Mount. And, and the Lord allows such fanfare because He's in control. How, control, how in control is He? I love... I love this part. I've shared it with you before. The crowd is saying, He is coming. He is coming. And the priests inside the temple, separated from the crowd, were saying, Make way. Let Him come. Let Him come. And they didn't even know what they were saying. In the temple, the priest recites a specific, they recite a specific psalm each day of the week. And this is Sunday, Psalm 24 would have been what they were reciting. We read Psalm 24 this morning. Remember Clay said, pay attention. Read this or listen to this in light of the triumphal entry. That's the psalm that the priests were reciting in the temple. Let me read it to you again. Psalm of David, the earth is the Lord's and all that contain in it. All that it contains, the world and all who dwell in it. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of Yahweh? Who may stand in His holy place? This is what the priests are saying. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood or has sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek thy face, even Jacob. Listen to this. Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient of doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Lord, Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your head, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. That's what the priests are reciting on Sunday, the very day. And the people outside are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of Yahweh. And the priests inside are saying, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient of doors, that the king of glory may come in. 
Matthew 21 says that because of the commotion, the multitude in the city is asking, Who is this? And the priests in the temple were answering, Who is the King of glory? It's, it's God. <laughs> That's who He is. You got... I mean, it's no wonder Jesus said that, that if, if these people stop praising me, the rocks will crouch. You've got unsaved priests announcing His coming and their judgment in the, in the temple. And the Pharisees know exactly what's happening. Luke 19, verse 39. They were enraged and they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus quotes Habakkuk chapter 2. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from its timbers will answer. It's a claim of deity. You think they were upset whenever they were hearing the people say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they say, do you understand what they're saying about you? Tell them to be quiet. Jesus quotes Habakkuk and, and claims deity. I mean, they're furious. He says, if men won't give proper praise, the inanimate objects will. The heavens declare the glory of God even when men won't. Prophetic fulfillment is confirmed the very day when he enters the city. This day was prophesied long before in Daniel 9.25. 7 7 sevens, and all of that crazy language that's hard to understand. It's easy if you work it as a as a math problem. 483 years from this moment, from the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It's 483 years. It's 483 years from that moment when Jesus is entering. This doesn't just happen by chance. This is a divine orchestrated plan. And you put all of it together, you've got Jesus for three years confirming Himself to be the Messiah, healing the lame, causing the blind to see, raising the dead. Now He's presenting Himself as the King. And look at how Mark ends the story, because this is, this is why I think Mark is so significant. Verse 11, And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, He left. Jesus enters the holy city of Jerusalem on the eastern side of the temple, from the Mount of Olives, as Ezekiel says. He's on a colt, as Zechariah declared. It's the very day Daniel prophesied of. He's coming to do what Isaiah foretold. He's doing exactly what Isaiah said. He's been doing that for three years. He rides up into the temple himself, the temple itself. He looks around. And nothing. And Mark says, he leaves. And all that because nobody recognizes Him. I mean, here is the Son of God at His inauguration. He's presented Himself as the King and nothing. Can you imagine what it would be like if on the day in which we swear in our President, the President of the United States, He shows up with His you know, four or five people and there's absolutely nobody gathered there. There's no podium. There's no justice to the Supreme Court to swear him in. There's nothing. He shows up just like he's supposed to. And, I mean, none of the news media covers it. 
Nobody even knows what's happening, and he's just there alone. Magnify that by ten million times ten million. Turn back to Luke 19, because Luke shows us Jesus' response to the triumphal entry. Verse 41. It says, When he approached Jerusalem, Luke 19, 41, he saw the city and wept. Why is he weeping? Luke tells us. Saying as he wept, If you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace. If you had known this day, if you would have recognized this this day, but you didn't. And then he pronounces judgment. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will be leveled to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time, the moment of your visitation. You got the presentation of the king, big fanfare. Nothing. Jesus turns around and leaves. Luke 19 says before he ever even gets there, he knows exactly what's going to happen. And he weeps over the city because they missed the day of their visitation. And if we had time, I would take you over to Matthew 24 and I would show you the prophecy of the king. Matthew 24, you know Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, right? The Olivet Discourse talks about the second coming of Christ. Here is the first coming, the first presentation of the king on Sunday. You have the cleansing of the temple on Monday, and then you have Tuesday, the confrontations with the religious leaders, and the pronouncement of woes, woes unto the scribes, woe unto the Pharisees, and then Matthew 24, which is the Olivet Discourse that talks about His second coming. Within two days from Jesus making this pronouncement in Luke after they missed Him in Mark 11, He foretells of His second coming. He says His second coming will be very different from the first one. In His first coming, in this coming, and this is the sermon in five minutes. That was to set this up. His first coming, He's a compassionate confirmation over and over and over. He's been declaring signs that the Messiah has arrived. He's been healing blind and raising dead. The next time... Matthew 24 says that there will be wars and rumors and wars. There will be false messiahs everywhere. 
with the Antichrist and tribulation. The first time there's peace, there's healings, there's confirmation, and the second time there'll be continual conflict. There'll be false teachers everywhere saying, follow me, no, here's the Christ, no, here's the Christ. There'll be battles everywhere the next time He comes. The first time He came announced, and it was prepared. Everything was prepared. John the Baptist came to do what? Prepare the way of the Lord, to announce to the Jews, He's here, you should have you should be watching for Him, but, but you need to repent. You need to, and God's given you a chance to repent. That's John the Baptist's message. Elijah, he's coming in the spirit of Elijah. Jesus lives for 30 years before he presents himself as the king. He's in ministry for three years. He goes around preaching himself, and now you have the triumphal entry. Everything to announce who he was. I mean, can it be any plainer? It was announced and prepared. And Matthew 24 says, the next time he comes, there will be an abrupt appearance. It's unexpected. It's sudden. Matthew uses words like, it'll be like lightning. You ever watch lightning? Lightning happens so fast, it looks like it comes from the top down rather than the bottom up, right? You've watched it in slow motion? I mean, that's how fast Jesus is going to come. It's not going to be this great announcement in 30 years and then three years of ministry and, and just grinding through the fulfillment of prophecies to make sure that you, you're prepared and the announcement is proper and it's there the next time it's going to be like lightning. Immediately, suddenly, is the words that Matthew uses. The first time you have people praising, the crowd cries, Hosanna. The angels rejoiced over the shepherds, even whenever he's born. And Matthew says the next time that he comes, mankind mourns. Coming angels judge. The tribes of the earth will mourn, Matthew 24, 30 says. The first time he comes as the suffering servant, he, he comes in humility. And that was the point of the, the writing on the colt. And he comes as the son of David. Son of David, Hosanna. He comes as is an offering of salvation as the Lamb of God. He comes in in his role in submission to the Father. He, he submitted to the Father to accomplish the plan of redemption. In Matthew 24, the next time he comes, he comes as the glorious God, as the Son of Man. He'll bring a flood of judgment. Come like the lion of the tribe of Judah. Matthew 24 talks about as it was in the days of Noah. The flood takes them away. He comes in the position of the Creator God. There's a big difference between the first coming and the second coming. And you're between them. And you read that passage in Mark 11 and you go, how could they have missed it? I really think the question that you need to ask yourself is, have you missed it? Where... Where are you at in relation to the second coming of the king? Are you a Christian and are you asleep? He's coming. And he's going to come like lightning. Are you outside of the kingdom? You say, here 
It's the entire nation of Israel, a religious system set up, and they missed him. Oh, I won't miss him. I'll repent and believe on my deathbed right before I die, or, or one day I'll get religious, or whatever you're thinking. Mark says he enters in, he looks around, no one receives him, and he leaves. The next time he comes, he'll enter as a king, and he's not leaving this time. He'll judge. And right now, he's offering grace upon grace upon grace if you will but bow the knee and acknowledge him as king.